0: Hey guys, welcome to episode 29 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. Like always, we want to thank our Patreon supporters who will list and acknowledge at the end of the show. You guys are so amazing. Thank you so much for all you do and your contributions. We are hoping that you're enjoying the extra episodes and the hints about our normally scheduled episodes. We also want to thank our sponsors today, KIND and Audible. So without any further ado, we want to get into this popular case that we have for you today. So this case has been featured as a backstory in movies like The Changeling and the TV series like American Horror Story, which I love. It's one of my favorites. And that was a part of the hotel season that this episode's from. I believe that this case uh, was used by Hollywood because it truly encapsulates a fear that we all have. This case involves a cruel and brutal family, isolation, psychopathy, kidnapping, torture, murder, and duress. It is everything that nightmares are made of. It's one of those stories that torments you, makes your stomach hurt, and you never truly forget the first time that you hear about it. But it's also a story of bravery, justice, perseverance, and survival. Today we are going to talk about a man who is evil in every sense of the word, and of a boy who is equally as brave. Both men coming from the same family, which is going to help us discuss the ultimate true crime debate of Nature versus Nurture.
1: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil. In some form or another, are we not?
0: Lock your doors, lock your windows.
1: If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so.
0: Before we begin, we have to warn the audience that the the crimes we will be discussing today involve brutal crimes against children. If this is something that you cannot stomach, we suggest you stop listening now, because this is definitely going to be a graphic episode. However, we choose to leave out no details. Because we don't feel that it's fair to the victims to glaze over the atrocities that they suffered. They deserve a voice, and that's what we're trying to do here. Our story begins in the early 1920s with the Northcott family, who lives in British Columbia, Canada. The Northcots were a family of four. They were comprised of Louise and George Northcott and their two children, Winifred and Stuart. Now, there is a large age difference between the two children as Winnie is already out of the house and married by the time that Stuart begins to walk. Winnie and her mother have two things in common. They are both domineering and controlling women who have beaten down their husbands into a resigned silence as they run the household. They are also both obsessed with Stuart. To them, he can do no wrong. When Stuart is three years old, Winnie and her husband John Clark welcome the first of four children into the world. She is given the nickname Jessie. 4 years later a son is born, Sanford. Later two other sons will follow, Kenneth and Eddie. However, when Eddie is born, Winnie must say goodbye to her parents and her beloved brother. The details are still unclear and are only known because of a passing comment made but the Northcots had to leave Winnie and her family behind in Canada because of Stuart's affliction. George stated during a scene that we will mention later on that the family had to move to California in order to save Stewart from the law because of what he did to young boys, in quotations. So the family moved to Los Angeles, where George continued to be a private contractor, bringing in a high salary for those times. But two years later, he would come back to visit his sister, and he had a proposition for her. Later, her children will recall that it was torturous living with their mother, who was cruel to both them and their father. Most of the time, they just worked to avoid her at all costs. However, when her brother came, she was a different woman. The two would often go off alone, and they would giggle and flirt in front of everyone, as John, their father, silently watched on. During this visit of Stuart Northcott, Sanford Clark was 13 years old. The boy was listening to his mother's private conversations with his uncle, mostly because he was fascinated with the bizarre relationship they had, and even more by the fact that his father did nothing about it. The two were currently locked in an embrace and whispering to each other. From what Sanford knew about his 19-year-old uncle, he wanted to be a concert pianist and always took good care of himself. He wore nice suits and had manicured hands. So that's why this conversation that they were having didn't make any sense. His uncle was telling his mother that he had convinced their father and mother to buy him a chicken farm outside of Los Angeles in a town called Wineville. The boy had no idea why his uncle would want to start a chicken farm. And actually, this didn't make any sense to an outsider either. Stuart was a smart, handsome man that if he wanted to, could do hard labor in L.A., which was booming at the time with construction jobs because of the new creation, Hollywood Land. Studios were being built, as were homes and businesses, so, so why wouldn't he do the same work for twice the money? It didn't make any sense. Stewart then asked his sister if he could take his nine-year-old nephew, Kenneth, with him to start the farm. But Kenneth was Winnie's favorite, and she would not allow him to be taken from her. Then the talk turned to him. His stomach dropped. Uncle Stuart was trying to convince his mother that he could use young Sanford's help to build the farm and work there. Winnie was agreeing that Sanford was a rude boy who was stupid and never listened, and maybe work at the farm and being out in isolation would make a man of him. The two approached Sanford and told him that he was going to go down with his uncle and help him start up work at his farm. Sanford begged and pleaded with his mother that he wanted to stay and go to school in Canada. He promised that he would do whatever she asked of him. Winnie told her 13-year-old son that he was worthless and that it would never amount to anything, and going out to his uncle's farm was the best chance that he had in life. Stuart was giggling and laughing and telling Sanford to cheer up, that they were going to have a splendid time raising chickens and doing honest work. Sanford looked to his father, who was still staring silently on. He bore his eyes into his father, hoping that for once he would stand up for himself. And he did. As much as he could, at least. He said that he didn't like the plan one bit that Sanford should stay with them and continue on at school. But Winnie ignored him, as did Stuart. And before Sanford knew what was happening, his bags were being packed, and he was saying goodbye to his brothers and his older sister Jessie, who he was closest with. He asked Jessie to stop this. Don't make him go. But she told him not to worry, and that she would come and get him as soon as she got herself out of this godforsaken house. When it came time to say goodbye to his parents, His mother just told him to mind his uncle. He leaned in to hug his father, and he said with his eyes what he couldn't say out loud. I'm sorry, son. There's nothing I can do. The two began their journey from British Columbia down to Southern California in his uncle's new yellow Buick convertible Roadster. It was 1926. When they got to the American border, he told Sanford that he was not to talk. He had to lie to the police at the border to get him into America. He was going to tell them that Sanford was an American citizen who had lost his papers, but he needed to return because a relative had passed away in California. From what Sanford could see, the police were getting annoyed with Stewart's ramblings and persistence, so they eventually just let the two cross the border.
1: Imagine if that happened now. Could you imagine? Like, that would just never happen.
0: No, it would definitely be a little bit harder to cross the border now.
1: That's crazy to me. <laughs> just but like this guy's giving us a you know. A hard, a hard time, time. let's we'll just, just let him go. Let the fucking guy go. I want to carry on with my day. Could you imagine?
0: I think it just has to do with a lot of paperwork too. There's always yeah. a lack of paperwork and saying once you lost paperwork back then it was pretty hard to get it back, so That's true. The pair drove during the day and slept at night. Stuart spreading out across the seats in the car and Sanford on a pile of blankets on the ground. But the boy didn't mind because it allowed him to stretch out, something that he wasn't able to do during the driving daylight hours. Sanford thought to himself as he was trying to drift off to sleep how he was going to be able to deal with his uncle. From what he had seen, he was crazy. While they were driving, his moods would swing from one extreme to the other, One second he was manic and happy about the future at the chicken farm, and the next he would be extremely angry and hit the steering wheel and curse up a storm. Sanford noted one thing to himself. His uncle seemed to be the most happy when he was paying complete attention to him. It was just as they reached the border of California that Sanford felt the rage of his uncle for the first time. During a conversation they were having about Hollywood and movies, Sanford did not respond the way Stewart wanted him to, and he punched him in the head so hard that his head bounced off his chest and he bit his tongue, tasting blood. Again, when he didn't respond fast enough, another punch came. This time his vision got fuzzy and he saw stars. A few minutes later, Sanford said something, trying to make his uncle laugh, but it didn't work and he was hit again, for a third time. But this time his uncle pulled the car over to the side of the road. He thought to himself, I want to run away. I need to get away from this man. But he knew running would only make him angry, and he didn't know what his his uncle was capable of. His uncle grabbed his shirt and said to him, in a voice that Sanford recalled, sounded like that of a teenage girl. Your mother told me how much trouble you are to her. A dreamer. Can't pay attention. Don't like school but that will not happen with me. You're the kid, I'm the adult. You do what I say, and don't give me grief. This is how we're going to get along, together in life, correct? And Sanford said correct. As they were driving further south, Stewart revealed his feelings to Sanford about the state of the world and his role in it. He said the way to fix the world was to take all of the kids that are good-natured and just nurture them, treat them well. But the bad ones, the ones who do not listen, should be gotten rid of. And someone just had to have the willpower to do it. That was all. And this made Sanford think. What were his uncle's plans at the chicken ranch? Stuart let his nephew know, as they were only a few minutes away, that they were going to stop and stay with his parents, Sanford's grandparents, for a few weeks while they ordered supplies and got plans for the ranch in order. Sanford didn't know his grandparents too well, but he had hoped that staying with them would make Stuart not hit him anymore. At the time of Sanford and Stuart's visit, George Northcott was 62 years old and his wife Louise was 54. When the two boys arrived, because if you think about it, they're both truly boys, right? He's only 19. Louise fawned over her son. She ran to greet him and tend to his every wish. She did not even acknowledge the presence of her grandson that she hadn't seen since he was a she was a since he was a toddler, but with his grandmother and his uncle, he heard the same sweet and flirty conversations that he had heard back at his house with his mother. He didn't understand how Stuart could be charming enough to disarm the two meanest women he'd ever met in his thirteen years on the planet, although Sanford hoped that being at his grandparents' house would be good. It was quite the opposite. It was clear that he was not wanted there. His grandmother greeted him by telling him that his mother had called in advance to let her know how worthless he was, and she also wanted to let him know how lucky he was that her boy was giving him a chance that he didn't deserve. She also warned him that Stuart was not to do any of the hard work at the ranch. He wasn't to have any calluses on his hands. Because he still wanted to be a famous concert pianist, and if he does, he'd have to pay for it. I think that, I think that ship is kind of sailed. I don't think he's going to be a concert pianist yeah, anymore. really. And,
1: and also, like, just because you have calluses on your hands, they go away after a while. It's not like...
0: Well, I think she's just saying my son's too good for this work. Of That's course, what we sent you down here for? Which
1: it's so odd because then why would you go and get a chicken coop? You know what I mean. Yeah, a it's chicken like ranch is hard work. You're defeating the whole purpose of everybody around you. Your whole family thinks that you're too good for that, and that your goals and your aspirations are way better than a chicken coop. Then what the hell do you fucking buy a chicken coop Yeah,
0: for? not too many people are passionate about chickens.
1: I mean, chickens are tasty and they, you know, are cool. I guess, but I mean, it seems the fuck? a little
0: strange. <laughs> Sanford agreed and sat in the living room while his uncle and grandparents discussed business. They were talking about how Stuart must do everything correctly because he expected his money back as quickly as possible. Stuart walked into the room with Sanford, away from his parents, and without any provocation punched Sanford in the side of his head. He was hit so hard that he fell into a wall. He was instantly disoriented, and he heard his grandfather call out, don't you break anything in there. His grandmother walked in and sneered at the boy on the floor. Sanford tried to get up, and he instantly felt a force rock him back to the ground. His uncle told him that he needs to ask permission to get back up. He stayed on the ground. He didn't know what the right thing to do was. His grandmother eventually picked him up and put him in the backyard until they were ready for him to come back inside for dinner.
1: They're treating this kid like a dog.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think that what that attack was, was that Stewart wasn't happy that his parents were telling him, you got to pay us back. So he's taking out his aggression on the only person he can, Sanford.
1: Right. I mean, this kid is in a really bad situation right Instantly,
0: now. Instantly, right away, like on the drive down. Yeah. Away from his house. This is every kid's worst nightmare. It's crazy. Sanford and Stewart stayed there for two weeks. And in that time, Sanford learned that Seward stops the beatings quicker if he lays on the ground in the fetal position. He liked when he had complete dominance over him. Uh, later, Sanford's going to recall that the best thing that he could do was, I guess, if if someone gets hit hard enough, it kind of their body twitches. So he would kind of, he, he noticed that if his body did that twitch, that his uncle stopped so he would try to start like imitating the same thing to stop the beating from happening
1: which is completely horrible but at the same time it's super smart on this kid's part
0: yeah he's trying to learn like, he's
1: smart like from the moment he got in the car to go down this he, kid was aware of a lot of things yeah he was that the typical kid probably wouldn't no even think about
0: definitely not
1: so kudos to that i i
0: think it has to do with um his mother's crazy mood swings that were the same as his uncle's right so he was watching his behavior to know what set him off what to do what not to do he was in survival mode basically but it's during their time at the house that the sexual abuse also began stewart would come into sanford's room at night and force him to undress Stuart would touch and kiss him as he touched himself. Sanford would spend that time paralyzed in fear, pretending that he was somewhere else, terrified to move because he didn't want to provoke another beating. After each time, Stuart would tell Sanford something that ensured that he would never run away or talk about what was happening. He knew just what to say to the 13-year-old boy to terrify him more than he already was. He told him that he could never tell anyone what just happened because this now means that he's a homosexual, because he liked it, and because he didn't stop him, and because he had gotten an erection, and that if anyone thought he was a homosexual, no one would ever look at him or treat him the same way again. Now that's something that we know is outrageous statement today. But back in 1926, it wasn't too far from the truth about being alienated from society. Yeah, definitely. Um, Especially when you talk about a young kid's survival like in school and stuff. But he also told him that if he ran away, he was going to be thrown in American prison because he was in this country illegally.
1: Right, so... This guy just used every tactic in the book to literally, not not just beat him physically, but also mentally into submission.
0: Exactly. That's what he did. Yeah. He said that in the American prisons, he would get raped by multiple men at the same time, and the guards would do nothing to stop it, and they would love a little boy like him. He told Sanford that he couldn't even run away if he wanted to, because they used something called the Oregon boot on you, and the older boys... Will always catch him with it on. So, what the Oregon boot is? It was something that was used in, um, the early nineteen hundreds in American prisons. It's it's like a fifty pound weight that's put on your ankles.
1: So it's a ball and chain.
0: It's it's a ball and chain, but without like it allowed work better working conditions for the prisoners. Okay, like they could move around without like the ball following them. But it's essentially a ball and chain, but just on your ankles.
1: It's like like workout weights for your ankles.
0: (laughs) Yeah, except for prisoners. Um, But that actually stopped in 1918, was the use of the Oregon boot, because it was found that it was cruel and unusual punishment because of the deformities that it was causing in the prisoners. Oh, wow. But all those stories absolutely terrified him. Because to a 13-year-old boy, it's all true. And to Sanford... What he was enduring was better than what he would have to endure if he ran away. So now we're going to take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor, Kind. Have you guys ever tried Kind bars? You might have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. They're all over the place. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. Well, if you're ready to try something tasty and healthy, we've got a special deal for you today. Try 20 Kind Snacks from seven of their unique product lines with our new snack pack enjoy 50 percent off and free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through snack club kinds monthly snack subscription service go to kindsnacks.com tcc for more details the snack pack has the perfect mix of the kind favorites for all of your daily snacking needs like to start your day out with whole grains try the the oats and honey with toasted coconut granola clusters. Need to snack healthy while on the go? Enjoy Kind's dark chocolate nuts and sea salt bar. Looking for a plant-based protein? Take a bite of the crunchy peanut butter protein bar. We love KIND snacks and the best part of it is that they're made in the United States with ingredients that you can recognize and pronounce. They use high-quality nutrient-dense whole ingredients like whole nuts, whole grains to keep your body and your taste buds happy. My favorite bars are the dark chocolate nuts and sea salt and the peanut butter dark chocolate. But I also love putting the peanut butter whole grain clusters into my yogurt. So, let's get to the deal. Visit kindsnacks.com/tcc to learn more and subscribe to the snack pack, which you will receive for 50% off with free shipping. Again, that's kindsnacks.com slash TCC, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Finally, after everything was set up and the supplies were sent to the ranch, Sanford and Stewart were leaving for Wineville. Wineville, California was so named because of the vineyards in the area, and the desert location that made up the chicken ranch had a beautiful backdrop of the San Bernardino Mountains. When they got to the ranch, Sanford helped with the construction of the chicken coops and the rabbit hutches, while his grandfather's construction crew began to build the farmhouse that they would live in. While this was happening, Sanford and Stewart lived in a tent. The second day they were building the coops, two boys who lived about half a mile away asked Sanford if he could play with them, but Stewart scared them off right away and told them never to come back again. It seemed like isolation is what he wanted for Sanford. It was during their first week at the farm that Stewart hit Sanford upside the head with one of the two by fours they were using for construction. He regained consciousness as his uncle was dragging him back to his tent. This is where the first of his brutal sexual attacks took place. He was continually hit on the back of the head while he was being sodomized by his uncle. Once Stewart was finished, He picked up Sanford and carried him to the chicken coop, and he threw him inside, where he told him to stay until he got him. He heard his uncle's car leave, and he knew he was locked inside the coop. Sanford lay on the floor in a heap, ashamed, terrified, and broken. He just continued to repeat to himself, What do I do? Until he eventually fell asleep. Sanford was woken up by the sounds of his uncle's car returning. He heard both his voice and the voice of someone else, someone who was speaking broken English. This is something that was very common for the area, as they were only a two-hour driving distance from Mexico. He listened closely but didn't hear anything for a long time, and then he drifted back to sleep. However, he was woken again when he heard screaming in the coop next to his. Two more screams followed, the third being choked off. They were the screams of a boy, and it sounded like he was being hit by something hard. A few minutes later, he heard the attack of the boy, the same thing his uncle had done to him he was now doing to this boy. Sanford began to silently sob to himself, feeling like the attack was never ending, that it was longer than the attack that happened to him. However, he didn't know if it was longer because he heard the boy do the same pleading that he did. And now he understood. This is why Stuart wanted to come here. To be in isolation. To do what he wanted to do to him and other boys. After the attack of the boy ended, Stuart opened the chicken coop in which Sanford was in. And he ordered the boy to go and check the feed levels as he walked away laughing. Sanford heard the boy crying, but did as his uncle ordered. Is that just so casual? Like, just go do normal chores. Like, he's starting to create what he wants to be this new normal. Right. For their living situation.
1: It's it's just odd, you know, because, like, all these (laughs) things that are not normal for children to do and then have to also watch now too and listen i mean he probably didn't see other these other boys and the actions that were being done to them yeah the one boy right now maybe at this point but i mean even just to hear that oh yeah let me go uh, casually do my chores but i'm hearing kids being you know possibly sodomized and killed
0: yeah and i think that there's a guilt that's involved but it's also a self-preservation that makes him want to just do what his uncle is saying.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, you don't want to, you know, you don't want more fire and brimstone to rain down on you because this this guy was awful.
0: Yeah, brutal. I think one of the scariest things that we can take from this first experience is that after Stewart is going to attack Sanford, there's no regret afterwards. He actually goes out and gets a, another boy. Right. That's what's, that shows that he is a sadistic man. And that he has zero remorse.
1: It also shows, like, I, in my opinion, that must have been doing this a while.
0: Right, and that... this
1: didn't happen, th- you know, to have this sort of... Um, escalation. Exactly. This, the escalation's kind of off, unless he was doing it for a while.
0: Well, that's so. what was implied as to why they had to Correct. go to America. Right, Right, right. Mm-hmm. Stuart kept the boy, whose name we will never know, for a week in the chicken coop. He would gag him when the workers were there during the day and at night he would resume his attacks that Sanford tried to ignore. He pretended the boy wasn't there and he avoided the chicken coop at all costs. Stewart noticed this and wanting to traumatize Sanford even further, he asked him to go and bring the boy some beans. Sanford brought the beans to the coop, his legs shaking, and then he opened the door and he noticed that the boy was the same size as him, but must have been a few years older. He also noticed that the boy was covered in bruises. He was holding his arm in a way which made it look like it was broken. He couldn't even make out the features on his face because he was so badly deformed by swollen skin, bruises, and dried blood. The boy began yelling and screaming in Spanish, gesturing to the chains. Although he didn't know what he was saying, he knew that he should help he knew that he wanted him to let him out so that he could run away or that they could run away together because that's what it seemed like he was gesturing. Right. The only thing that he was saying in English was you and me, you and me.
1: Well, I mean, I, I would assume he's probably thinking, okay, well, we're the same, around the same age. And
0: he can let me out.
1: Right, exactly. And like this, whatever's happening to me is probably happening to you. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Or you're, you're here to save me. Right. Sanford wanted to help the boy and he wanted to help himself. He also knew that if he was going to help, he needed to think this through, because he didn't want to suffer the consequences of a poorly thought-out escape plan. Sanford tried to bring the beans closer towards the boy, but with his hysterical gesturing, he knocked the can over. He raised his hands up to calm the boy down and kept whispering to him, he'll be back, don't worry, he'll be back. The boy seemed to somehow understand, and he quieted down. As Sanford walked away, he began thinking up plans. If they managed to get away, would they even be able to talk to police? It seemed most likely that the boy was also here illegally in the country. Now, would they care about these two boys, these illegal immigrants, and their pleas for help? Would they even believe them? He also knew it would take a lot of time to cut through those chains around the boy. He'd have to use a hacksaw, and that would take a really long time. He finally decided that he was was at least going to try. And that night, while his uncle was sleeping, he would go visit the boy again. When Sanford returned to the campsite, his uncle was laughing. He asked him how his meeting with the boy went. He told Sanford that he wanted him to bathe in the morning, because he was getting tired of the dirty ones. Sanford did not make eye contact, and he agreed. His uncle went to bed, and Sanford waited for him to go to sleep. But before his uncle fell asleep, he did. And when he woke up, he realized it was morning, and he panicked. His uncle never lets him sleep that late. He jumped up, bracing himself for an attack. He ran out of the tent, and noticed that his uncle's car wasn't there. This was his chance. He could get the boy out now. So he ran to the coop as quickly as he could. But there was no boy. There wasn't a trace of him or the chains. The blood that had covered the coop yesterday and the bloody blankets that covered the floor were all gone, like the boy never existed. So Sanford continued with the chores. He knew he'd pay for it if they weren't done. Sanford kept telling himself that maybe his uncle was returning the boy to his town, or where he found him, but in his heart, he knew that the boy was dead. That night, Stuart returned, and he was in one of his manic moods. When he walked up, Sanford was reading one of the detective novels that he had brought in with him. Stuart said, You're wasting your time with those novels, because you're not learning anything. If it would help us, if those novels would teach you something, I'd like that you were reading them. It would be nice if you learned how to do something like get rid of a body. You know, one that's about 100 pounds. Do you know how to do that, Sanford? Stewart asked him. And when he said no, he told him that he did. And then he went in the tent. Then Stewart popped his head back out. And he said, anyone can kill, but only an artist can get away with it. And went back inside. Interesting. Yeah, it it definitely seems like this is not this is probably the first murder that's going to take place on the ranch. But I don't think it's the first murder that
1: that he has that he's done. done. Oh, absolutely not.
0: After the first boy, Stewart seemed to get worse and worse. He began to chain up Sanford, only letting him out to do the chores around the ranch. Stuart was becoming more violent. It seemed like he wasn't able to continue all of the rapes because they were so violent. Um So when he physically couldn't, wasn't able to rape the boy, he would use large pieces of wood and chicken wire. When recalling his time at the ranch, Sanford said that he bled every day and couldn't sit down. Knowing that three months had passed since Sanford had written home, he knew that the boy had to write a letter. He forced the boy to scribble down everything that he dictated to him. In the end, Sanford's first letter home read as follows, written in his shaky, unpracticed cursive. Dear Family, Everything Uncle Stewart said he would do, he has done for me. I am healthy and working hard whenever I am not in school. My school teacher, Mrs. Dasher, says Uncle Stewart is doing a good job of teaching me everything I need to know about the farm. And she should know because her whole family is from a long line of farmers in the area and they have made several fortunes in citrus crops and cows. My scouting group had a camp out right here on the ranch and Uncle Stewart provided the tents. I hope you are all well. I am fine. But Sanford didn't want to sign the letter. He felt like it was a lie. He knew his only chance of getting out of this place was Jesse. But Stewart beat him until he was unconscious. And when he woke up, he had to give in. And he signed the letter. Stewart told him that the only reason he was keeping him alive was because he was an asset and not a liability. But the second he became one, he was dead. But Sanford was right. His sister was beginning to get suspicious. She had moved out of her parents' house and went to a local calling center to find out if there were any Northcots who had phones registered in their name in California. She was worried because she would have thought that her brother would have written to her by now. The two were very close. However, there were no phones registered to any Northcots and she knew that she'd have to save for months if she wanted to go see her brother. She had recently arranged a meeting with her father, without her mother there. When she met with her father, he seemed nervous. She asked him what was wrong. He told her that he had done something that he knew his wife would get upset about. He opened a piece of mail that had her name on it, but it was from his son, so he felt like he should be able to read it as well. When he told Jesse, he never showed Winnie, because he thinks there's something wrong with the letter, and he knows she wouldn't care. He gave Jessie the letter, and she read it. The two then agreed that the letter says that he's going to school, but his handwriting hadn't improved one bit, and he would never write sentences like that. Something was very wrong with that letter. John Clark gave his daughter a letter that he had written before he got there. He asked her if she could write a letter and mail it from her house and include the letter that he had written to give to his son. They should try and talk to him through Jesse's address so that Winnie could not intercept it. They needed to find what was going on with Sanford. The night that Sanford was attacked because he wouldn't sign the letter, he tried to run away. He knew his uncle was sleeping, and he made a run for it. He got as far as a nearby river, but he knew that if he tried to run any further, he would only go further into the desert, where he knew he wouldn't survive. Or he would have to double back and then go further into town. And he knew at this point he wouldn't make it. So he walked back to the ranch. And it seemed as if Stuart did not know he was gone. So he walked back into the coop that he was being held in. And he went to sleep. But it seemed that his uncle did know that he tried to run off because he was awoken the next morning by a pot of boiling water being poured all over his back. The water was so hot that his skin bubbled and peeled off. It seemed that for a week or so that kept Stewart off. He also had another boy gagged and held in the chicken coop on the property. However, this was a dangerous situation because George Northcott was on the property. Sanford kept hoping the man would hear the screams of the boy, and his prayers were answered. As Sanford was sleeping, in the coop, with his ears covered, trying not to listen to the attack that seemed to be not taking place against him, but was all at the same time, he heard the porch door open, and he heard his grandfather yell out to his son, Would you stop? I'm trying to get some damn sleep over here. And Sanford's heart broke. Why would nobody help them?
1: That's very sad.
0: It's so sad. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. But it just seems like no matter what this man is doing, that his parents are not caring. They're letting it happen. I mean they they
1: obviously know yeah. what he does. They're so en- they're
0: enabling, they're
1: enabling inc- oh, the I- worst
0: kind of addiction that anyone yeah, can
1: have. That's crazy that is insane. And the fact that nobody will step in isn't like even if they didn't want to blow the cover, like they could have told somebody else at this point. And they the cops could have at could least have
0: told told their son, stop.
1: Right, exactly. What are you doing? Right. That's what's insane.
0: The next several months were a blur for Sanford. The physical work on the ranch never stopped, and he claimed that about once a month Stewart would bring a poor boy who spoke broken English and would hold them for about a week. See, they're the perfect victims because these are migrant families, migrant workers, um, people that are coming illegally from Mexico. They can't really report to the police that their sons are missing because they're not supposed to be there. Right. So, and if they do report it, the police... It's not their top priority here,
1: which is always an MO of a you know a kidnapper slash serial serial rapist rapist slash killer. Because these people, no one's going to look for these people. Same thing with when a killer's to go after prostitutes. No one they they look at them as less of you know less Less dead.
0: It's the concept of (laughs) the less dead. It's crazy. But just because Stewart had boys in the chicken coop, it didn't mean that the attacks on Sanford himself stopped. In fact, they got worse. Stewart trying to outdo himself with each attack on the boy. All the while convincing him that doing this meant that he was a homosexual and would never be accepted again. And now he had a hand in the murders of all of these boys. So without a doubt now he would go to American prisons. And he made sure that the boy knew what happened to men who killed children in prison. Isn't that ironic? (laughs) It is. But just when Sanford, the boy who was always constantly bleeding from his uncle's attacks, the boy who couldn't sleep on his back because of his burned skin, which only seemed to get worse, didn't think his uncle could possibly get more insane. But he was wrong. Now, the reason why his burned skin kept getting worse and worse when, when Sanford recalls everything that's going to happen to him on the farm, he says that his uncle would only had petroleum jelly on the farm and that he used it for everything. So when he put the petroleum jelly on his back, they didn't real. well, I don't know if he realized it or not, but that makes the burn worse because it keeps the heat in. So, in fact, every time they spread petroleum jelly on the burn, the burn was getting worse.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't even know that. I thought you would be able to put that on there.
0: No. Hmm. So, the the burn was just constantly never healing, so his skin was just getting, like, scarred over and scarred over.
1: That's terrible. That's terrible.
0: At this point, Sanford was completely worn down, and Stuart was able to leave the farm for days at a time. It was one of these times when Stuart was gone for a long weekend that Sanford felt like he was going to be able to relax. However, he saw that yellow roadster coming up the drive to the ranch, and he heard his uncle's voice taunting him, telling him to come over, come over, that he had a surprise for him, and he did indeed have a box with him, and there was a towel over the box, He slowly lifted the towel, and Sanford leaned in to see what it is. What's in the box? (laughs) But this is like, really, though. Like, what's in the box? Same thing as the movie.
1: Oh, wow. At
0: first, first he thought he only saw an animal in the box, and just thought that Stuart was teasing him. But then he realized it wasn't an animal. It was the head of a man.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: this time, the, jo- the it's not a joke. It's okay, that escalated, really ahead really in the box. Wow, okay. Stewart began rambling about murdering the man and that if you want to make sure that no one ever finds out that you murdered somebody, that you have to destroy their fingers and cut off their head. That way, they can never identify the body. So he forced Sanford to burn the head. And the two watched on as the head burned in the flames, Sanford almost vomiting because the smell was so bad. Stewart was explaining to him that this was a crime and it was very different from what had been happening at the ranch. This was not a little Mexican boy, as he put it. This was a Mexican man and probably one with a family. Therefore, we need an alibi. So he decided that he needed to get his parents involved and that he needed to tell them this fake story that he was going to make up because then they can vouch for him and the fact that him killing the man was because of self-defense. He said, you can do anything in America as long as it's self-defense. We kind of learned that with our last episode, didn't we? That's true. So he told Sanford the story that he wanted him to tell his parents so they could all create an alibi. Once Stuart practiced the story with him several times, they drove out to L.A. to talk to Louise and George Northcott. The story was that the man was a worker on the farm, but he was lazy and he was stealing from Stuart. Stuart and Sanford caught him and confronted him. Stuart having a pistol and Sanford having a rifle, the man attacked Stuart with a knife, but it fell and Stuart shot him in the forehead, and then ran outside to pray while Sanford stood there. When Stuart came back inside, the man was still alive, and he had to put him out of his misery. So he shot him four more times in the head. Sanford shot him once in the chest. Then Stuart hit him with an axe three times in the head, and shot him another four times, and then cut off his head. So the body was hard to identify so that's the story that they told George and Louise Northcott
1: right well it, that story's ridiculous though
0: that's an...
1: it's overkill
0: shooting someone nine times hitting them in the head with an axe three times It just it shows you how out of touch with reality Stuart truly is well, he's, that that yeah. was his alibi story
1: right and also like he 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 doesn't like he's so um What's the word I'm looking for? Like, he's
0: delusional? just... Delusional? Well, he's delusional, but Nuts. he's
1: he's desensitized. Yes, like, to the violence of it to, all. To the to the violence, yeah.
0: As he's telling the story, he already is expecting his parents to accept it and to help him. And you know what?
1: That's not self-defense. You can't chop, no. you can't shoot somebody in the head a million times and chop their head off. Right. That's insanity.
0: You're bringing a gun to a knife fight. That's, Two guns. Yeah, that's crazy. In the story. Plus, I think it also goes to show what Stewart thinks of himself in the way he tells the story, saying that he shot the man directly in the forehead, like, oh, he's such a great shot. Cause he kept, like, he's a
1: cowboy or yeah, something. Yeah, he kept repeating that to yeah. his
0: parents. But then also that he ran outside to go pray. Oh, like, of
1: course. Like, he's such a
0: good man still. Yeah. Like, this is what he's trying to portray and put out there. Yeah, like, like a man of God. Like, he's some kind of, I guess, movie star. He does have this fascination with Hollywood and being famous and the movies and... And that's what I think, I think he's playing a role in his head. Could be. So when his father began to start asking questions, Stuart got angry. But then his mother started saying that everything was going to be okay. And Stuart completely changed, like with a snap of a finger. He starts crying and putting his head on his mother's shoulders and saying he was so upset and that he was sorry and that he was really stressed out. And then his mother suggested that they go to the movies because he was so stressed. And and he, they did. They just went to the movies after this whole story was said. And afterwards, S- Sanford, after his uncle and his grandmother leave, he, he goes into the bathroom and he, he vomits because he's just so, he can't believe it, like, just when he thinks, okay, someone's got to step in. This is ridiculous. Nobody does.
1: And then the kid just, like, burned a head. Yeah. Like, so he's not He's boy. not okay right now.
0: No. And um, when he comes back out, he sees that George Northcott has his his head in his hands, and he's resigned, exhausted. And then he he sees his father and his grandfather.
1: Right. Well there, I I could see that they being like a,
0: a similarity similarity yeah. in the family dynamic.
1: Yes. The family dynamic is uh very similar. similar.
0: Right. It's, it's bizarre. She, she has become her mother.
1: And and it's funny how he like even though he knows what's going on with you know with his son like you can tell he does not
0: he doesn't approve. He him. doesn't
1: approve and he he does ask questions. You know so when the yeah. story's being told he's asking questions. But It's not the right questions, and it's also, like...
0: It's not enough.
1: No, it's not.
0: Just like we saw when they took Sanford away, when John Clark kind of, like, spoke up a little bit, but then he was shut down. He kind of just, like, oh, okay, whatever. I think that George Northcott's silent rebellion is telling him to quiet down or don't break anything in there. Like, that's his way of saying, I know what you're doing. Right. Kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a few weeks after they returned from L.A., Stewart had seemed to go off again, and in the past he would be away for a few days, but this time he was gone for an entire week. Sanford was still, however, in constant fear of not knowing, of not knowing when his uncle was going to come back, what he was going to bring back, or what he was going to do when he returned. In the middle of the eighth day that Stuart had been away, Sanford heard his car pulling up in the drive. He also heard the music blasting and two people talking. So it was true, Uncle Stuart had been out hunting for fresh meat, as he always called it. And Sanford's stomach hurt so bad the way it always does when he knew what the boys in the car were in for. He was trying to avoid running into the two so he stayed in the feed room as the car engine shut off. But this finally allowed him to be able to hear the voices and what they were saying. It wasn't Spanish or even broken English. It was English. As Sanford walked out of the feed room, curious, Stewart called out to him, Sanford, come here. I have a new playmate for you. Say hello to him. His name is Walter Collins. Sanford stopped dead in his tracks. He walked up to the nicely-dressed boy. "'Hi,' Walter said eagerly. "'You're Sanford, right?' "'I thought you worked at the ranch.' "'Yeah. Hi. Chicken Ranch,' Sanford answered. He was staring at his uncle in complete surprise. "'Walter Collins,' Sanford asked. "'That's his name,' his uncle replied. "'I've heard you say that name. Do you already know him?' "'I do,' Uncle Stewart said, and then turned and play-whispered to Walter.' He's so jealous, just like a wife. Walter nodded. He does know us, my mom and me. You know their family, Uncle Stuart? Now not too much, Stuart replied. My mom met him just that one time at the store. You see, jealous wife. A couple years back, I worked at the grocery store where Walter used to come in and run errands with his mother. She almost never did the shopping herself. Sanford nodded. He remembered. Uncle Stuart had told him about this boy and what he'd always wanted to do to him. But Walter was looking around, and he seemed confused. He asked where the horses were, and he kept asking, this can't be the real ranch, right? Where are the horses? Where are the horses? Well, actually, Walter, Sanford said, we don't have any animals like that here. Sanford was completely thrown by the arrival of the boy, who certainly appeared to be headed for the victim's shed. But this time he already knew Uncle Stuart, and he knew this was a problem. And if the boy's mother had met Stuart at one time, then surely this boy had to be returned home unharmed. So a sense of hope was sparked in Sanford.
1: Right, because it's not like the other boys who, like we said earlier, had, you know, broken English. No one was going to be looking for them. Right. So this is different. This is not Very the typical
0: scenario scenario goes here down. Yeah. he was confused but wondered why Stuart would make such a crazy mistake passion must have taken over walter kept asking him where the animals were why couldn't he see any of the ponies and that's when sanford told him that they only had chickens and maybe a few rabbits he said he saw in the boy's eyes then that he knew he was in trouble So now we are going to pause and hear about our second sponsor, Audible. I am personally so excited to discuss Audible with our listeners. If you love listening to podcasts, you're going to love Audible. Audible is an Amazon company that holds the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. There has never been a title that I haven't been able to find. And trust me, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, right?
1: Uh, Too many. (laughs)
0: Uh, since I became a member of Audible about two years ago, I have to say I've listened my way through about 30 titles, over 30, maybe? It's a lot. Fairly quickly. Yeah. (laughs) He's jealous. A little bit. Sometimes I think it's crazy to say, but honestly, Audible has, has changed my life. I have always loved reading, but sometimes life can be so busy. And Audible makes it possible to complete everyday activities while getting in your reading. It really relaxes me. Audiobooks are also a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, sunbathing on the beach, running, road tripping, and just enjoying downtime outdoors. Like you all know, listening is a better way to binge content you love while doing the things you love. Currently, I just finished the new Stephen King novel, The Outsider, which was, of course, another horror masterpiece by the master himself, And I just moved on to the new Ruth Ware title, The Death of Mrs. Westway, which actually scared me while I was cleaning the apartment this morning.
1: She always jumps.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Audible always helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. Whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or on your home, or at home on Amazon Echo, you can get... You can get through a ton of books, hands and eyes free, while doing almost anything. Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook in our store, regardless of price. And unused credits roll over until the next month. Don't like your audiobook? You can exchange it, no questions asked. And honestly, that process is so easy. I've had books that I started reading and I wasn't too into and without any questions audible just gives you that credit right back plus your books are yours to keep with audible you can go back and re-listen at any time even if you cancel your membership really audible gave me back the gift of reading in the midst of my busy schedule and it can do the same for you start a 30-day trial of your first o- start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free go to audible.com/tcc or text TCC to 500, 500 Again, start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash TCC, or text TCC to 500, 500 and you can do anything with these audiobooks. Walter, it's time to tell you the truth, Stuart said, in a solemn tone. Your mother has been very, very, very angry with you for a long time now. I don't want to say that she is so sick of you that she's actually started to hate your guts. It's not what I'm trying to say. So forget about it. Don't worry. She doesn't hate you. I promise you that. She's your mother. She can't hate you. That's what Stuart kept saying to Walter in his madman voice that Sanford know a little bit too well. She's just tired of you. She doesn't want you anymore, Walter. It's the ugly truth of it. Stuart's single statement was enough to burst the dam that the boy was using to keep all of his fears inside. He lost all control. He began to wail like a police siren. He kept screaming, Take me back to my mom. Where are the horses? You told me there were horses. My mom wants me back home. This is when Stuart picked up the little boy, and carried him to the bedroom. He yelled back to Sanford to sleep out in the feed room for a day or two. Sanford did so all the while, knowing that Walter Collins was going through hell. He knew he was heavily chained up in his uncle's bedroom, and he just hoped that the boy was staying calm. Sanford tried to pass the time by reading his Western novels in the feed room, but it was the arrival of Walter Collins that made Sanford stop reading his Western novels. They were something that had given him great comfort over the past few months. But all of a sudden, they made him sick to his stomach. There were no heroes. No one was coming to save Walter Collins, and no one was coming to save him. That night, he ripped up his country western novels, and he sobbed, until he fell asleep. Over the next few days, Sanford stayed in the coop, did his chores, and avoided his uncle at all costs. He would occasionally see his uncle walking around the ranch, but he was different this time, almost in an arrogant way. He would walk around practically naked, smoking a cigar. Sanford was also avoiding Walter. It was hard enough interacting with the boys who did not speak English. He did not know if he could handle it if he knew what the boy was saying, if he could understand the communicated pain and how much it would mirror his own. One morning, four days into Walter's stay at the ranch, Sanford is woken up by his uncle saying that he had spent the night in LA and that he did so for an alibi. He also said that his mother was coming to visit the farm and that he needed Sanford's help to make the feed room soundproof so that they could keep Walter in there while his mother was visiting, and he told him to hurry up. As Sanford is working on the soundproofing, he saw his uncle had brought Walter out. He told Sanford to stop what he was doing and to see to it that Walter cleans himself up. Again, he was tired of how filthy the boys had become. Sanford does as he's told. As the boy is splashing water onto himself from the spigot, he keeps whispering, Sanford, Sanford. And Sanford's trying to avoid talking to him, so he's not answering. But finally, he says yes. And he says, please tell him that I'm sorry. I'm sorry and it's okay that there's no animals. I don't want to see them anyway. I'll be good. I promise, just tell him so he'll stop. And the boy went hysterical for a moment, but then quickly pulled himself together. A lesson that Sanford had learned as well. He told him that crying won't help him and he just needs to stay calm and let him do what he wants, and he'll be done quicker. He promises he will let him go back to his mom just to calm down. He asked why he came out here anyway, and he said that he came out because he thought that this was a ranch where there were horses, especially a horse that loved little boys, because he was told a story that there was a horse who broke his leg, and a little boy saved it. And that little boy looked like him, and Stuart told him that if he went to the ranch, the horse would love him just like he loved the little boy. They were both silent after that for a very long time. And Sanford told him to make sure that he washed up well so that he didn't make his uncle angry, and the boy did. Sanford's grandmother came to the ranch the next day. The first few days of her visit were quiet. She helped with the work on the farm. It appeared that she wanted to make sure that everything was being run according to plan so Stuart could pay back the loan. However, on the third night, as Sanford was preparing dinner, his grandmother ran into the kitchen and began str- began screaming at Stuart. She even hit him upside the head. Sanford noted it was the same way that Stuart hit him. She was saying that she saw him sneaking out to the feed room all the time bringing nothing there and bringing nothing back, so she figured that she'd go check on her little boy's interests. So she got the keys and went to the shed. She was screaming that she talked to the boy, and Stuart was telling her not to believe anything the boy said, that he was a liar. And the rest of the conversation goes as follows. Louise Northcott said, He tried to tell me that he was sorry. Sorry, Stuart. He kept on saying it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. He said his mother told him that you seem nice. Oh, and he wants you to know that he doesn't care that you don't have a pony. Jesus, Stuart, a pony? Alright, I know how this has to look to you, Stuart replied. Stop right there, son. I've turned my back on your special I've turned my back on your special interests year after year. We moved our family out of Canada and hope to leave your special interests behind. My advice and my protection has kept you out of jail because of your special interests. Now you have rewarded me by taking a risk with somebody who knows you. He doesn't know me, Stewart said. He's got a mother out there that met you. Don't you know how stupid that is? Did you? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Samford could only watch in horrified fascination while, uncle, while his uncle's lower lip began to quiver. Seconds later, he burst into tears just like he had done at the house when they were talking about the Mexican man's murder. He started to cry and started pleading and calling Louise mommy, mommy, over and over again. And that's when Louise said that she would take care of everything. Not to worry, she was going to make sure that no one found out that her son had taken Walter Collins. When Stewart asked how she was going to do that, Louise responded, we have to kill him, and just then, a wordless rush of air blasted through Sanford's lips. He couldn't believe it. it was all the protests that his grandmother would stand for, and she looked at the boy and said, "Shut up, or you're next Louise Northcott then said she had been laying with the boy until he fell asleep, comforting him, so now they were going to go out there and kill him. The three of them walked out to the shed. As Walter Collins was sleeping, Louise Northcott brought the hatchet down on his head three times. She then forced Sanford to do the same. After the boy was buried, the three cleaned up and drove Louise back in the early morning hours. Before she got out of the car, she looked at her son and said, Never take a boy who knows you again. All right, so just to quickly kind of break from the storyline of Sanford and Stewart, we're going to do a little aside because this is where the whole movie plot from The Changeling comes. Which was
1: a great movie.
0: Was a great movie, but this is where it comes into play. Okay. So as Walter is missing, once Walter Collins goes missing in L.A., there is a massive manhunt search for him right Right. this is a boy from a rich neighborhood a white boy it's going to be brought to police attention so this is the tragedy that unfolds with the collins family when walter collins was abducted after his mother christine collins gave him money to go to the movies. The LAPD was under extreme scrutiny because of the nationwide search for the boy. So that explains to us a little bit of what could have taken place. I think that Stewart's taking of Walter was impulsive. He knew him from the store. He'd kind of always wanted to do this. And Stewart had, he was kind of on, I mean, as disgusting as it sounds, but a high because he'd always wanted this isolation of this ranch to do all he's living out his fantasies on the ranch right. right and now all of a sudden he sees a boy from his past that he wanted to do this to and i think his um cockiness came into play
1: yeah it got the better of him
0: right so walter was given money to go to the movies stewart sees him takes him that's base basically what took place. However, we know from the accounts with Sanford that only a few weeks into his disappearance, he was murdered by Louise Northcott um, himself, he admits, and his uncle. But now this is the aside. Five months after the boy's disappearance, so once the boy's bones had been buried, and what what happens later and what Stewart does is he Uh, buries the boys but then he unburies them once until they just become bones and then he burns the bones so really what's only been found of these boys is just some bones like we've never found full skeletons at the chicken ranch
1: right because i mean they were just trying to get rid of all the evidence pretty much
0: so five months after the boys disappearance police believe that they found walter And in order to make the department look better, like they found a boy, like a homeless boy who was claiming to be Walter Collins. And in order to make the department look better, because they obviously looked like crap because they couldn't find him, they wanted to call the media there for the public reunion of mother and son. However, when the boy ran into the arms of his mother, Christine Collins, she pulled away from him he wasn't Walter. The police captain at the time told Christine Collins to just accept the boy and try him out for a few weeks. In taking the boy home and bringing him to the doctors, Christine's fears were confirmed. This was not her son. She took him back to the police station, and because she was causing such a problem, she was committed to a psychiatric ward of the L.A. County Hospital that we'll talk about later. Eventually, the police question the boy, and he admits that he's not Walter. He was Arthur Hutchins, who had run away from Iowa and just wanted to go to Hollywood to meet his favorite actors.
1: That's actually really funny.
0: That's insane. (laughs) So Collins is going to end up suing the LAPD and win a settlement of $10,800 that was never paid. So we're going to talk a little bit more about christine collins as we get into the later part of the episode but that is what's also happening the undertone of after the the murder of walter collins is that his mother in this desperate search for him is going to go through a second tragedy and thinking that her son is found meet him he's not there and then be tortured by the lapd
1: which is crazy and then be forced into a psych ward right i mean that's crazy I mean, could you imagine being the mother here, trying to locate your missing child, and this is the bullshit that you have to go through?
0: Yeah, no, I can't imagine. It's insane. All right. So I just thought that was a very interesting aside that is part of the story that had become a part of the movie, Changeling. And Clint Eastwood directed that. It was such a good movie. It was a really good movie, So just to say, this tragedy is so far-reaching. All of these stories that we say, we we truly can't cover how much damage this one man did because we don't even know the boys' names and the families and what those families went through after the abductions of their sons, their brothers, of, you know... During the time after the murder of Walter Collins, Stewart received a letter from Jessie, and made Sanford write another letter back to her. This one was the same as the first letter. When Jessie received it, it seemed strange again. There were no- These were not the words of her brother. She had told him that she had moved out and gotten a job. For sure her brother would have asked her questions about it. Instead, the letter was like a press release for the amazing Stewart. She was glad that she was going to be making a trip to California in a few months. However, back at the ranch, it seemed as if Stewart was not taking his mother's advice. Two months after the murder of Walter Collins, Stewart brought home two brothers, 12-year-old Louis Winslow and 10-year-old Nelson. It appeared to Sanford that the boys had wanted to take a ride in Stewart's car. Stewart told Sanford that he had been driving down to Pomona a lot, making the people at the Model Yacht Club feel comfortable, and that is how he was able to take the two boys. They were very wealthy, two white boys from Pomona. Stewart told Sanford that he wanted him to prepare the shed for the two boys immediately. When Sanford ran back, Stuart handed him nails and a hammer. He told him that he wanted to be nailed in with the boys for the night and to bring him coffee in the morning as soon as the sun rose. Sanford knew he had to do as he was told, but with every nail he put in the door, with every scream he heard, he wanted to throw up. He had to let his uncle out in the morning, and when he did, he saw the younger boy the younger boy crying and pleading while the older boy was staring blankly ahead. Stewart made them write letters home, just as he had made Sanford. However, their letter was a lot shorter than his had been. It read, Dear Mother and Dad, We are going to Mexico to make a lot of money making yachts and airplanes. A woman gave us something to eat. Don't worry, we'll be okay. Louie and Nelson. Okay, so that's where we're going to stop here for part one of the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. We definitely have another hour and a half episode in with this one, so we didn't want to overwhelm you and just do a three-hour episode, but we're going to record the next part tomorrow, so you'll have that episode by Thursday. So this one you guys are getting today and then Thursday we'll have part 2 ready for you to go. It's definitely sad. It's a lot to take in. It was a lot to research it and to write it and the story is only half over. So there's a lot more coming.
1: Yeah, a lot sort of uh twists, developments. It's yeah. crazy.
0: It's a lot. This one this is one that I remember getting to me pretty hard. So um It was definitely interesting to go really deep into this case and find out all of this information. So we'll have part two for you out and ready to go, and that's when we're going to also, again, thank our Patreon supporters. If you want to donate to us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple, and tell us what you think about part one so far on either Twitter or Instagram at truecrimecouple. All right? Thanks, guys, and see you soon.
1: Bye, guys.